Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. Today we are recording a fertility Q&A. These are my absolute favorite episodes because I get to answer your fertility questions that you call and ask. I love covering topics in depth. I think that is such a great way for us to be able to search episodes and learn more. However, sometimes we don't even know what to ask. And that's why listening to other people's questions and hearing the answers can be really helpful. Plus, you guys are always giving me so many new ideas. So if you'd like to call and leave a voicemail for us to answer sometime, you can call 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. You can be totally anonymous if you want. You can leave your name. You can ask your question. All of the above is fine. So before we dive in, a couple housekeeping items. One, Pinnacle Conference is coming to Austin, Texas. I'm sure if you follow me on social, you have seen this. And I am so thrilled to bring the baby home. Pinnacle is a conference for all women in medicine. And we're really talking about leadership and business. It's always an amazing event. It is something that connects you with other women and it will inspire you like nothing else. If you are a woman in medicine and you would like to learn more, it is pinnacleconference.org and you can learn all about it and try to get your seat before we are sold out. We also have a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for at nataliecrawfordmd.com newsletter. The newsletter is going to give you updates, my favorite things, recipes, and also answer some fertility in the news and some of your fertility questions. You can find those fertility questions on Instagram every Monday at Natalie Crawford MD. So go to Instagram, put your question in the box. Some will go in the newsletter, some will go in episodes, and some will be answered right there on Instagram. All right, and the last update before we jump in is that the Enhanced Your Natural Fertility and the IVF course are coming back. We gave everybody who had that first year of enrollment, we really dove hard and learned a lot about the course, and now we are going to be able to offer it in a little bit different package. So you can go to nataliecrawfordmd.com and learn more about it there. All right, well, let's get to your questions now. Hi, Dr. Crawford. I'm calling with a question about semen quality for IVF. 
I was diagnosed with diminished ovarian reserve and have been talking with my boyfriend about embryo banking. But one concern coming up is that he's a longtime smoker who gave up cigarettes for vaping, and he's had an extremely difficult time quitting nicotine entirely. On a semen analysis, his count, motility, and morphology were all considered normal or above average range, and he's otherwise completely healthy. Since time is of the essence, I'm inclined to go ahead with the embryo banking rather than wait an indeterminate amount of time for him to eventually wean off nicotine. But I'm also wondering if there are other elements of semen quality that I should be considering since it's such a big investment. I wanted to know if you think it's worth it to get a DNA fragmentation test or any other parameters that should also be checked beyond the basic semen analysis. Thank you so much for your help. This is a wonderful question and it brings up a lot of really interesting points. So when we find out we have diminished ovarian reserve or low ovarian reserve, what that means is ultimately we have a lower number of eggs, meaning we will get fewer eggs per IVF cycle. It also means that we are likely to run out of eggs earlier as well. So if you haven't started your family and you want to, undergoing IVF with either embryo banking, so fertilizing the eggs and making them into embryos, or saving them as eggs are both beneficial options. Number one, you should do one of these. Number two, if this is your person and you wanna have babies with this person, you should make embryos solely because you're going to get more data about the embryo. The fact the semen analysis is not bad, well, that's good because we know one way that sperm is impacted by cigarette smoking is actually in the counts and in the morphology, and that can be reflected on the semen analysis. But we know that men who smoke even have lower outcomes with IVF, which means even when you clean the sperm and you're doing IVF, you still see lower live birth rates even in IVF cycles. But what about e-cigarette use? Because honestly, that is a little bit different. Vaping is different than smoking, although most studies also point to harm. So in our natural fertility studies, which we have some data, we definitely see a decrease in sperm production and an increase in miscarriage. There's a concern for an increase in abnormal DNA inside the sperm's head, which could contribute to miscarriage. That being said, we don't have that study really looking at e-cigarette use in the male and what that further outcome is. In addition, complicating factors are that a lot of smoking slash vaping studies have a lot of confounding based on secondhand smoke, partner usage, and other environment. So that can also play a role in egg quality and implantation and ultimate outcome. So this is a hard variable to study isolated. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual.
And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. What I would say is that if this is your person, I would say go through IVF. Should you do a DNA sperm frag? What that means, the DNA sperm fragmentation is a test where you look at the sperm. It's more specialized than a normal semen analysis. And you're trying to see if the DNA inside the sperm's head is damaged. And if it is more damaged, the recommendation is that when you do IVF, that you do a special type of fertilization called ICSI. And ICSI stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection. This is where you take a sperm and you put it directly inside of an egg. So versus conventional fertilization, which is where if you can imagine you have a Petri dish full of eggs and you dump sperm on top of them and the sperm still have to do the sperm job of attaching to the membrane of the egg, the outer shell, which is called the zona pellucida, and having this acrosome reaction, which allows the sperm essentially to eat away at that zona pellucida and enter the egg, allows the egg to heal back up afterwards so no other sperm can get back in, and then that sperm DNA can mesh with maternal DNA. So the current studies support utilization of a DNA sperm fragmentation to help determine if a couple should do ICSI. However, many labs will do ICSI all the time. Many labs will do ICSI if requested. Many labs, this is their standard protocol because you don't know who might have a failed fertilization and that's a devastating outcome, especially in the context of normal sperm parameters, which it does happen. So if you're talking to somebody and you're talking about embryo banking and they say they're planning to do ICSI or they're willing to do ICSI, then I don't know that I'd go through doing the test because it's not changing my management. You're already going to try to help support him to stop, try to at least help his body in other ways with antioxidants and vitamins and exercise and healthy foods. You're trying to avoid your own exposure, but are you going to wait three months and see if it gets better? You're not going to do that. So because you have a low ovarian reserve, we want to get this show on the road. So we're not going to be in the position of waiting around to see if the sperm gets better. You could do the sperm frag. If it's abnormal, then go and pursue ICSI. Or maybe you just say, hey, we want to do embryos because that fits our life goals. If we can't stop smoking, we are then going to go ahead and proceed and hopefully do ICSI within our cycle. So up to you. The concern is that if the ultimate way that smoking in a male contributes to infertility is through an increased rate of miscarriage, you're not going to know that to the back end. So 
do you want to just get pregnant sooner? That's a real big, serious conversation that I would have. But if you want to have kids in the future, then definitely making embryos gives you more data. Because one of the problems, if you stop at eggs, is we do not know how many eggs you need to make a normal embryo. That's gonna be really dependent on age. And we don't know the outcome of that till later. So what if they don't? Are you then out of eggs or is it too late to intervene? But last thing, if you are not 1000% certain that this is your person, egg freezing is much cheaper than embryos. You can do at least two rounds for the cost of doing embryos and genetic testing. And ultimately that is more eggs to work with than just one round of IVF. So there are circumstances, even when somebody has low ovarian reserve, that I say, hey, you have low reserve, your relationship status, you would have a baby with this person, but maybe you're not 100% it's gonna be this person forever, or maybe you are, but just financially at this point of your life, you have X dollars. And for X dollars, you could do two rounds of eggs or one round and make them into embryos. And if you tell me, I don't have more money, even if I don't get the normal embryos, I'm not gonna be able to do another cycle. We often will stop at the egg. So there's a world where considering the finances and does insurance cover it and how many cycles you have and how old you are and your life goals and your relationship, where you might say, hey, for the same cost of this, I could do two rounds of eggs. It's going to keep more doors open that can let you, honey, work on the smoking situation so that we really do have the best sperm moving forward. Yes. Hi, I'm doing timed intercourse and I was wondering if it's better to take letrozole on cycle days three through seven or five through nine, if there's any higher pregnancy rate with uh, either one of those durations. And then also, what is the best criteria for the trigger shot? Should the follicle size be at least greater than 20 millimeters? Also, is there a, an ideal estrogen level as well? Thanks again for taking the question. Hope to hear the answer soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, well, hello. And letrozole is a great medication that you can use for timed intercourse. So to answer the question, there is some difference, but it does depend on what you are using it for. And the take home is clinically, I will start letrozole anywhere between cycle day two to five, and I really don't blink an eye because the outcomes are ultimately pretty similar. Letrozole is also known as Famara, and this medication is an aromatase inhibitor. An aromatase inhibitor essentially eats up estrogen that is in your bloodstream. So your body is still making estrogen, but your brain doesn't see it because the aromatase inhibitor is eating it up. So your brain thinks that there's a low estrogen level and sends out a higher signal of FSH or follicle stimulating hormone. This follicle stimulating hormone is what stimulates your ovaries to start growing an egg. So ovulation induction medications like letrozole can be used for people who don't ovulate like PCOS. So if you have PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, one of the problems to simplify the disease is that the brain doesn't send out a strong enough signal of FSH for how many follicles there are in the ovary. And so you get stuck in this place of not ovulating or not ovulating reliably or as early as we would like to see in a cycle. But letrozole can also be used as a medication to make you super ovulate or ovulate more than one egg. And this treatment strategy is often utilized for unexplained infertility because part of what we're trying to do is combine letrozole or ovulating more than one egg with an IUI or an intrauterine insemination. And I always use the analogy, 
in this scenario, we're trying to get more eggs and more sperm closer together. So when we do that, what you're trying to do then is what we call super ovulate. In my clinical experience, if you're trying to get somebody to super ovulate, starting them earlier is a little bit better because if you start letrozole a little bit later, the brain has already started to send out some of its FSH and may have already selected just one follicle to be the dominant follicle in people who regularly ovulate. But if you don't regularly ovulate, then starting the medication anytime in there is fine and somebody on the borderline starting it later may improve their response if they potentially over-respond earlier. But the real take home here and what I want you to know is that clinically, I don't give a thought to it as long as it's in that day two to five window. And if I, who care immensely about my patient outcomes, do not really care about that, then please don't worry about that yourself. Now, follicles do mature at different sizes for different medications. And so a follicle on gonadotropins is going to mature at a smaller size than a follicle on letrozole or clomid, than a follicle that's natural. Most people for letrozole or clomid like a follicle to be around 20 millimeters. And when you're doing timed intercourse, nothing is perfect, so it is okay. Meaning I might see you, it might be 18, and I might tell you to trigger the next day or the day after that because we know that mature follicles grow about 1.5 to 2 centimeters a day as they're reaching their full peak maturity. Also and importantly, with letrozole, because it eats up estrogen in your periphery, you do not slash should not be checking an estrogen level most people really don't check them with timed intercourse cycles anyway, but specifically if you're on letrozole, there's no need. We do occasionally add letrozole into an IVF cycle if we are purposefully trying to lower your estrogen level. That is typically in a breast cancer scenario. We will often still check estrogen, but we know that the real value that the ovaries are making is a much higher value than what we're seeing, and we can't utilize that estrogen level to really make decisions. But that is just a different scenario. So in timed intercourse, I don't check any labs. If somebody's on letrozole, then I'm not going to check an estrogen because it's not going to be accurate. Hi, Dr. Crawford. My question is about high progesterone during the follicular phase. Um, I do get ovarian cysts, and doctors tell me that that doesn't interfere with fertility. But I think my cysts may be increasing my progesterone levels during the follicular phase. And I can't really find any good information on whether increased progesterone during the follicular phase because of ovarian cysts can have an impact on fertility. Thanks so much, and I love your podcast. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. 
All right. I highly doubt that cyst is making progesterone because by definition, the follicular phase is when you're growing a follicle and a follicle only will grow in a low progesterone environment. That doesn't mean that you don't have a cyst and it doesn't mean that it potentially could be problematic, but progesterone is not the thing that it's doing. And we know this based on the menstrual cycle, unless your periods are irregular or that's not really a bleed, or you have multiple bleeds or a lot of spotting, and we're just not timing our cycle right. But if we think about what happens in the normal menstrual cycle, a group of eggs is all released from that vault inside the ovary, and each egg grows inside a follicle. The follicle is a fluid-filled structure that you can see on the ultrasound. In the follicular phase, a follicle is growing. A follicle grows based on FSH stimulation from the brain. FSH knows to start releasing FSH based on the drop of estrogen from a dying follicle from the month before. And we also know that progesterone's presence blocks FSH from being released. And this is very important. And we know this because let's think about pregnancy, a really high progesterone state. That progesterone is telling the brain, hey, don't send out FSH. And that's preventing you from ovulating or having a supernumerary pregnancy where you're getting pregnant when you're already pregnant. And you think about somebody who's taking a progesterone-only birth control who has really low estrogen, this is how that is working, like the mini pill. So in the mini pill, that's a progesterone-only contraceptive option. If progesterone didn't inhibit the brain from sending out FSH, you would still ovulate on it. So progesterone does inhibit the brain from sending out FSH. It is very sensitive though, and that is why the mini pill is a less good option for contraception and other progesterone-based contraceptive options, notably the IUD, they do not always send a high enough level in your blood to truly inhibit the brain. So you'll see people who have a progesterone IUD and they may still ovulate even if they don't have a period because they have that constant progesterone exposure at the uterus and that progesterone is preventing the uterine lining from growing. That follicle doesn't even start growing. The follicular phase won't really start until that corpus luteum from the month before has stopped being hormonally active, meaning those estrogen and progesterone levels have dropped, telling the brain, hey, we are not pregnant. Progesterone tells the uterus also it's not pregnant, so then you bleed off that period. Then the brain says, oh my gosh, there's no estrogen that progesterone inhibition is gone, so it can start to send out FSH, and FSH is going to grow a new follicle. That follicle's making estrogen, heals up the lining so you stop bleeding. Eventually, when that estrogen gets high enough, it will trigger the brain to send out a surge of LH, and LH is a luteinizing hormone, and that is what triggers ovulation, so the follicle ruptures, the egg is released, and then you enter into the luteal phase. So in the follicular phase, when your body is growing a follicle, this is a time period that you are estrogen dominant, meaning you only have estrogen, you don't have progesterone. After you ovulate, then that exact same follicle reheals and becomes the corpus luteum. And that corpus luteum now makes progesterone and many other hormones, but up and down and up and down in peak levels, that's the luteal phase when the lining's getting ready for implantation. And when you don't get pregnant, progesterone drops, the process starts over again. So that corpus luteum becomes not hormonally active unless you have a pregnancy. 
So if you get pregnant, HCG will start to be made from that embryo and that rescues the corpus luteum and stimulates it to continue progesterone production. But without that, it will stop being hormonally active. That said, it might stick around for a while. So some people, especially people who just make ovarian cysts in the past, they might hang on to old corpus luteum for a while. They might develop follicular cysts, which just don't really ovulate. And these cysts are not harmful. I know the word cysts can be scary, but they definitely could be present in the follicular phase. But if it's making progesterone, then it's not what's going on. And remember that everybody has a cyst in the follicular phase. It's a follicle. Follicle is a cyst and it's growing and making estrogen. So if you think you have a high progesterone, I'm just curious why. Are we taking supplements or medications that could definitely impact your ability to get pregnant? I see this in supplements a lot. People taking something that has some progesterone-like property or... Have you had blood work done at a certain point? And then that makes me concerned that your periods may not be as regular as we think that they are. Hi, Dr. Natalie. I was wondering what the treatment options are for unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss. For a little background, both my partner and I are 32, and I have had two healthy full-term pregnancies in 2018 and 2020. But our third time trying to conceive has presented a bit of a challenge. And over the last 10 months, we've experienced four chemical pregnancies and one missed miscarriage at nine weeks that required a DNC. Our recurrent pregnancy loss workup was all normal, except I was positive for APS, which has been treated with baby aspirin and Lovenox, but I've still experienced two chemical pregnancies after receiving this diagnosis. So I was just wondering, is IVF with PGT testing the only option for unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss? Can you do an ovulation induction to grow a more mature follicle without doing IUI or IVF? And how common is unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss after having successful pregnancies? Thank you. I am so sorry for your losses. Anytime you have secondary infertility or recurrent pregnancy loss in general, it's a mind game. It's emotional. It's so hard. There's so much PTSD even when you see a pregnancy test afterward. And I can only imagine that after getting an APS diagnosis and then feeling like, yeah, you finally found something, not really having the answer. So let's just dive in a couple times. So recurrent pregnancy loss is officially two or more miscarriages. It is debatable if people consider biochemical pregnancies in that definition. A lot of your fertility doctors will, but we are watching pregnancies at earlier states. About 50% of cases of recurrent pregnancy loss don't ever have a diagnosis. It's considered idiopathic. So idiopathic and then genetic abnormalities, random genetic abnormalities are going to be your top two. We see random genetic abnormalities present with much earlier loss, especially in the chemical pregnancy zone. Certainly when we see antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, that is an autoimmune condition and that autoimmune disease essentially causes your blood to clot, especially in the small vessels and that's what the placenta is. So you see an increase in later miscarriage. So that means having loss really in the second trimester is by definition, or we'll say at least with a clinical pregnancy, but you also will see some OB outcomes. So things like preeclampsia, placental insufficiency, preterm birth. When you have that diagnosis, the recommendation is exactly what you've been doing for the last two pregnancies. So that's be taking a baby aspirin, and then when you get a positive pregnancy test, to start taking Lovenox. And those two treatments together really help normalize the pregnancy rate. Now, the fact that we haven't had a later loss after that treatment, to me, is reassuring that it's doing its job. 
but having chemical pregnancies can be extremely frustrating. All right. My belief is that the vast majority of chemical pregnancies are embryos that do not have the capability to become a child, largely because of something is wrong with the embryo, meaning it has not the right genetics. It has not the right metabolism. The cells aren't dividing right. Something else inherent in the embryo. That could just be bad luck. That sounds terrible to say, but it could, right? We have to acknowledge that. IVF will eliminate one of those. It will tell us which embryos have a higher potential because the embryos do have to prove themselves. So they have to have the right metabolism, you know, to get fully into that appropriate blastocyst stage, to get genetically tested. So some embryos that might start to try to implant but are not good quality or not expanded correctly, they're not ever going to get tested. So you've weeded some of those out. And then with the genetic testing, you're taking out the ones that are genetically abnormal. IVF with genetic testing decreases the chance of a miscarriage, but it does not eliminate it. So it does tell us there's something else embryonic that goes on. However, that's an option, right? And there's definitely something to consider just to take control of the situation. Will something else help? Maybe, and it does depend on the patient scenario and characteristics. So because APS is an autoimmune condition, I always recommend if somebody's not quite ready for IVF that we really take an autoimmune approach, which is really trying to decrease your body from inflammation. Steroids have not shown to be helpful in this scenario, so that's not the way, but just by watching what you eat, trying to eat non-inflammatory foods, getting good sleep, not going crazy with your exercise, like breaking down your muscle all the time, just really trying to be in a more neutral homeostasis world if we have anything autoimmune. And then making sure that we eliminate anything that could be potentially toxic or inflammatory like cigarette smoking or environmental chemicals, marijuana use. And we do know that smoking and marijuana both do increase miscarriage even if it's only the male partner who uses. So definitely don't let your partner feel off the hook there. Outside of those, I sometimes see an improvement in patients who are doing ovulation induction. I think this is purely because some people who might have some luteal phase issues, if you have a short luteal phase or some luteal phase spotting, if your periods aren't perfect, or potentially just giving you more eggs to ovulate by super ovulation, are you putting more possibilities out there for a sperm to fertilize a good one. It doesn't help across the board. That's why it's not first-line treatment for recurrent pregnancy loss, but especially in somebody who has conceived in the past, who's had an embryo implant, who's given birth, and if our tubes are open, if the sperm looks good, that's something that I might consider if we were trying to see if we could add to our family and we just want one more kid and try to avoid IVF but it really would depend on the accumulation of all the factors. And certainly if we go down that pathway and we still have another miscarriage, I would favor IVF at that point. Hi, Dr. Crawford. My name is Julie, and I just had my egg retrieval earlier this week. I am 38 years old. I have PCOS. We had anticipated retrieving a lot more eggs as edified by the ultrasound on last Saturday. But I believe due to my PCOS, we retrieved five with two being mature and three being immature. We did receive a preliminary call from the embryologist that all five did in fact fertilize. So we are waiting to hear on Monday how many made it to the blastocyst stage. My question is, if an egg is immature but successfully fertilizes, one, can it reasonably make it to the embryo stage and two are those reasonably able to be genetically normal 
we are doing the PG testing, and I'm just curious if the three that were immature eggs but did, in fact, fertilize have a chance to even make it to embryo and go on for normal genetic testing. Thank you. Well, one, I'm so sorry about this outcome with an IVF cycle. It can be so tough with PCOS, and there's a variety of reasons why. Not your exact question, but as an aside, in case you need to do another cycle or are doing one at some point. Reasons why this can happen can be, one, you are triggered too early because maybe they triggered you too early, your protocol, it wasn't an antagonist, so it wasn't one where you could utilize a Lupron trigger to prevent OHSS from happening, or maybe it was a scenario where they used a Lupron trigger, but you didn't respond fully to it, so the eggs really didn't finalize in their maturation, you only had a partial response, and so potentially that could be a reason why. I like to check labs after a Lupron trigger. Some places do, some places don't. Another reason why we can see this is that the timing of the retrieval of the trigger were off. It could be most notably somebody can start ovulating too early. So maybe depending on the time where you were using your ovulation blocker, if you were in an antagonist cycle versus the time of the retrieval, if you were already starting to ovulate at the time of, sometimes you do get a lower egg count or if the procedure started much later or it was off in some timing. Most of the time, when I see second opinion consults for this scenario, it is because somebody triggered you too early. They just got scared based off of a high estrogen and they triggered you out. Looking at your follicles, we would never expect some of them to be mature. And they took you to retrieval anyway, and then they got the most probable outcome. And when that happens, it sucks hard. Similar but different is that you have a unique maturity range. And this also does happen where I could tell somebody the average on this protocol is 15 to 20 millimeters mature we go through, we think we're good. Turns out for this one person, her eggs need to be 18 millimeters or bigger to be mature. Everybody's a little bit unique and you don't know until you get eggs in the lab. So there's a few different things at play, hopefully could be identified. And I would 100% expect slash want, if you were to do another cycle, you'd have somebody tell you exactly what they want to do different. And if they have nothing to change, zero, that would be a huge red flag for me and I'd want you to get another opinion. So maybe the protocol type was right. Maybe they need a different trigger size. Maybe they need a different trigger time. Maybe a different trigger medication. Maybe different blood work. Maybe they want to change the protocol. All of those are acceptable. But if it's exactly the same, no changes, I am concerned they are just putting you through the factory wheelhouse without giving any thought to what happened to you. I guess the last one they probably would have told you this is that sometimes you can't get everybody's follicles because of anatomy. And that can be true if the ovary is scarred somewhere, usually with patients with endometriosis or prior surgery. Maybe the ovary can be behind the uterus or stuck somewhere and it's just not safe to get. And obviously at retrieval, safety is first. It could also be if we are potentially a little bit overweight and we carry weight in our hips and thighs area, that can actually make it physically harder to sometimes access the ovaries based on the angle that you can get. So a variety of reasons, but there should be something that they can tell you. And I had a patient recently that I couldn't get to one of her ovaries and she's cycling again. And we talked about it. Hey, now that I know this, one of these ovaries, we may not be able to retrieve. We're going to make all of our trigger decisions based off the one that we know we can get for sure so that we are maximizing that ovary and the follicles to maturity. To the second part of your question, yeah, if it fertilizes, I don't worry about it, meaning one of the biggest issues with immature eggs is that they're not at the right stage to accept sperm. And if it matured in 
vitro in the dish. It got to a point, likely what happened later on, they were able to put a sperm inside of it and it accepted it and it fertilized. I'm not gonna worry about it. I don't see that if we track those embryos that there's an issue with them. And there was a study published in 2022, which was looking at this. And what it showed us is that there was no difference in pregnancy or live birth rates, whether it was a mature M2 or it was an M1 that then matured and they were able to fertilize it. However, the M2s alone did have slightly better fertilization blast and euploid rates. However, since yours did fertilize, then great. That is the number one difference that we see is a 76% fertilization rate in M2s, that's pretty industry standard, and a 56% with M1s that matured in the dish. When it came to blastocyst rates and then euploidy rates, we did see a slightly different level. But when it came to euploid rates in this study, they were about 15% less. So what I would say is that if it becomes euploid, fantastic. I wouldn't give a second thought to transferring it because you saw the same pregnancy outcomes. If it comes back and euploid, then you want to consider how many euploid you got and what that might mean for your next cycle. All right, you guys, thank you so much for sending in all these questions. These are just my favorite episodes ever. I love recording these episodes and answering your questions. They bring me a lot of joy. It's so great to at least feel a connection on the side of the microphone versus just being here all by myself. All right, so keep calling and sending your questions in for me if you would like to ask a question and have it answered on the As A Woman podcast. That number is going to be 657-229-3672. Again, it is 657-229-3672. You can also go ask your questions on Instagram at Monday at Natalie Crawford MD, which we will answer on Instagram on your other non-Q&A episodes at the end in our For Fertility's Sake segment and in the newsletter. Friendly reminder, you can sign up for that newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. Thank you, friends. Thank you all for listening to As A Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.